and the ministry that he's established through me, what's going on right now. It's very much about dealing with right now. So when I approach Revelation this time, I'm looking specifically for what he's telling us about right now. Again, I'm not real fascinated with what's going to happen out here. That's been taught and retaught, and you can read it, and you can go find all the differing opinions and get that, get that perspective. I am fascinated with what he said is happening right now because he, he says it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of John. John is simply a scribe. He tells us in these early verses that it was a revelation from God to Jesus, carried by his angels to a scribe named John. So that, that's the means by which it came. The purpose was to lay out and for, so that we could actually see the, the reality of Christ within this story. So John was the last of the disciples alive. He was exiled on the Isle of Patmos, and this is about 96 uh, A.D. when he begins to write. But the word revelation, we get this idea of a one-time revelation, of, of an unfolding. The idea behind revelation, I wish I could draw it, looks more like pages flipping. It's a constant moving in revelation. So again, when we go back to Matthew chapter 16, and we understand what we talked a little bit last week, again, about when Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they gave their opinions. And I, I want to tell you today, you ask any question about God, you're going to get opinion. And you're going to get heavily debated opinions. Because we don't know whether they're Calvinist or Arminian or what their belief systems are, but I guarantee you from those who are coming off the college campuses, they have debated at length trying to understand the reality of God, trying to be able to define him in four or five points. When you study Calvinism, they have God captured in five points. And immediately when you begin to read this and understand how, how impossible that is, because Matthew chapter 16, again, this is one of those great misunderstandings and one that has tragically affected the church. Not, this is not a moderate effect. This is a tragic one. When Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And they offer the opinions, well, you're this or you're that. And then Peter comes up with this profound answer. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, again, so powerful that we have to understand what Jesus said in response. He said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Not because you got the right answer. Not because you correctly said something. Not because you correctly identified me. He said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but from my Father, which is in heaven. So if we were going to say, pick out the important reality of Jesus' answer, what would we have to say that it is? What would he connect blessed to? Revelation. You're blessed because you got it by revelation. Not that you got the right answer. Not that you correctly identified who I am. You're blessed because of how you got the answer. And when he looked, he, in his description, he said, I can see in you, Peter, this petros, this small rock. And when I look through that hole, I can see the petros, the bedrock behind it. What did he see in Peter? He could see that Peter had received something by revelation. And he's telling us that the basis of the church will be revelation. The Catholic Church says it's Peter. The Christian Church says it's Jesus. And the unfortunate part is 
that the latter part of that verse says, and if you get this right, you will hold the keys to the kingdom. And you will be able to bind, and you will be able to loose. But we have to get it by revelation. And so we hit this strange question. I'm teaching on Sunday morning, first principles, things that God reveals in the early part of of Genesis, telling us truth. If we read something in the New Testament that we're confused about, we can usually find the truth of it within Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's amazing. God made us in his image, tells us that we are a trichotomous being. We are people of three parts, not two. You can't make us two parts. You can't make us body and and then some combination of soul and spirit, because that's not the image of God. So we're told early of body, soul, and spirit. We don't know that until later. But he's telling us that truth. So we get to this strange place that says, and God said, let there be light. So... What is the first thing he created? What would you say? Got a problem with the answer light. He had to do something first because God said, let there be light. There had to be sound before there was light. Sound creates substance. He said it and it was. What do you think light connects to? If there was illumination on something, what would suddenly you could see what you couldn't see because now there was light on it. What would we call that? Revelation. He speaks. And there's light. And light is produced by the speaking of God's word. By the speaking of his voice creates light, creates revelation. Revelation creates honor and glory. There had to be sound, powerful sound before there was light. And I want to tell you, when we could unfold that truth, if we could unfold the truth of what sound does, why do we praise God? What does praise do? What does that sound do? Why do we like it when there's four or five up here and they start singing, especially a cappella? Why do we like that? Because they have to be listening to each other because sound creates that unity. The sound of my life, the playing of this song of my life is supposed to be sung in harmony with the song of your life. Because that sound that we're producing creates substance. It creates unity. The speaking creates substance. When God began to speak and bring this revelation to John, he was shining a light so that we could see something that would be relevant to us right now. And that's the part that revelation has missed for me. I'm reading it, not trying to figure out the symbolism. It's there. And, and I can go back, and I, I will promise you what I will do if I teach you the symbolism. I'll go back into some commentary, one that I can agree with, and I'll present you with what somebody else has said. And I'm not really interested. Because I've told you last week, I'm reading a, a book by Watchman Nee that he wrote when he was in prison because he, he didn't have anybody teaching him. He wasn't reading commentaries, and he, he wrote a book called Come, Lord Jesus. And if you want to read ahead, then feel perfectly free and come and comment on this book that he wrote. But the reason I like it is because he doesn't work so hard trying to get the symbolism right, though that's, there's some of that in there. He's talking about why these things are relevant to him in prison in that moment. What's it telling him about himself right now? So that's where we start. That's the purpose, and that's what the study is really, for me, it's, it's what it's about. I love the fact that it was this John who also was the first to discover 
as he described himself in the Gospel of John, that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And again, throws us a curve. You know, for so long in me, it was like I could only kind of roll it into the category of arrogance. Why would he not just say it was him? Why describe himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved? I was in a healing conference in Austin when I finally understood this for the first time, that John got it before the rest of them did. Because the rest of the disciples were trying to say to Jesus and trying to say to God, look at how much we love you. Peter was telling Jesus, I'll die for you. I won't let anything harm you. Because Peter was trying to tell Jesus, I care about you. I love you. I will follow you. And John has rolled over into this new category of I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. Because John discovered what we all have to discover. That the greatness in this life is not telling God I love you. He knows it. He doesn't even question whether you love him or not. He, it's written across your heart. It's written across your life. Your life is an expression back to him of your love for him. John discovered that the greatness in this life was finding within the human capacity the ability to let God love us fully and completely. Why? As many times as you've heard it, you ought to be able to repeat it. Why is this so significant? Because you cannot give away what you don't have. I can ask you, to, Janice, to write me a check for $10 million, and the answer will likely be, unless you're holding something back, the answer will be, you know, Randy, I don't have it. Because you cannot give away what you don't have. If you can't receive the love of God, you cannot share with others the love of God. You'll try to give them the love that's born in your own heart, the feeble stuff, the incomplete stuff, and it will never be satisfying, it will never be sustaining, it will never be enduring, because the reality of, of the fact that, first of all, my wife deserves to be loved with the overflow of God's love placed in me by the Spirit. And now that that Spirit is overflowing, she's loved by the love of God and not the stuff that I can come up with. And it's life-changing. And John knew it. And this is John. He's telling us in this book of Revelation, I am seeing, I'm understanding, it's overflowing and it's coming to you. We talked last week a little bit about the fact that the reason for us that this is challenging is because when Jesus or when God would give the symbolism that David's talking about, when he would give it, it was the symbolism of heaven. He was seeing in a heavenly realm. It wasn't the seven feasts that David is talking about. When you understand each one of them, we taught that here several times about the seven feasts and the symbolism of those seven feasts. Those are being described in heavenly terms, seeing in, as a heavenly expression. So this revelation, it doesn't make sense to us. Jesus' parables spoke to something that they were dealing with right now. A house built upon sand or a house built upon a rock. That's not real confusing. But when you get into Revelation and you start in the symbolism of Revelation, it's not talking about a house built on a sand. The symbolism here is because it's the symbolism of heaven. He's wanting us to understand something from a realm that we cannot typically comprehend. So what we're going to do as best we can is we're going to look through these chapters in Revelation and understand to the best of our ability, what is he telling us, not about our future, what is he revealing to us that's life-changing right now? The beginning of it is that Revelation, that shining of that light and that unfolding is designed to be the means by which we have experience with God. And I want to tell you, the church across the board has concluded that the only experience that you can have with God is mental and emotional. So 
so we're, we're determined to get smarter, so the teaching becomes more intelligent, and the praise becomes more explosive, because we have to hit the mind and the emotions, because we don't know how to connect with God and have an experience spiritually. That's why our church is getting ramped up. I mean, you go to churches and they've got these lights flashing and they've got confetti falling and, I mean, there's dry ice creating this smoke and that's church trying to hit that appeal. And the pastor's becoming intelligent, trying to remarket this message to make it plausible, acceptable, to overcome the consumer resistance sitting out there in front of them so that somebody will buy it and stay in their church. You know, there's great messages and there's great praise. There's, there's great worship. But there is still something about the very, very quiet reality of the praise when it's just between you and God. And what that praise, the music of us, not the song we're singing, the music of your life. There's several words in the scripture, and I have to go back and really study this. It's been a long time. But our lives were designed to be a symphony so that it plays in music that we read everywhere in the scripture. It plays a symphony before God. What does that require? It requires that that I take the instrument that I have been given and that I play in agreement with what the orchestra director has put in front of me, my part, so that it will blend perfectly with your part. And as we play this together, it creates this sound over the earth. What do you think the sound over the earth is right now? It has to be a barking shrill sound over this earth. It's amazing. Again, this is just interesting stuff, and I'm chasing rabbits everywhere. It's just fun. Strange studies, and I think you could probably look this up on YouTube, but they took a container and put a, a cup of water in it and played hard music in it for, and I think it was like a month or two months. I can't, this, again, it's been a while. And I've, I've talked about it recently, but I still can't remember the details. And they put one in it, put a cup in another container, and, and it was just playing more like an orchestra, you know, music. After they opened it up, the water in the, in the container where it was the hard, harsh music was black. And the other one, it was clear. Because that water was reacting to the sound. Well, we're about, I'm, we're 70% water? 80%. What do you think that water is doing in us? Uh huh. It has the ability to change us. It has that ability to have that kind of an effect on us. Another study just recently discussed, I need a better notepad or a better memory one. And some of you may have heard this as well, but they put these sound devices inside the tree and recorded the sounds and those trees were producing sounds. Almost with, and when they played them, it would almost sound like a whale, that kind of wailing sound. But those trees were producing music designed to be sung to the Creator. This is not casual stuff. This is the reality of what is praise about. What is supposed to be happening in praise, it's supposed to be the tuning of my life to the tuning of your life. And when I began to recognize your strength and quit looking at your weakness, when I will start acknowledging your goodness instead of your fault, it's amazing when the harmony, how the harmony will begin. Because how does it sound to God when I criticize you? What does a song sound like when I criticize the next piece of his creation? It's shrill. 
I want to begin with verse 8 of John 1. We covered the first seven. God was giving John, through Jesus, a simple testimony of God himself. When he says, I am Alpha and Omega, I'm the beginning and I'm the ending, saith the Lord. He's speaking this into his reality, which is, which was, and which is to come. Okay, take that phrase, take that verse, verse 8, I am I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty. As a revelation, how does that become revelation and life-changing to you and I? Yeah. As we studied Sunday morning, anyone that looks at situations and circumstances, as we talked about Sunday morning, anybody who looks at the circumstances in their life, anybody that, that sorts through the history of things, and she said, and he said, and look at the facts, and look at the details, and look at all the things that occurred, so that they can process that and determine, am I going to take plan A, am I going to take plan B, or am I going to take plan C? I'm going to figure it out by looking at the circumstances, and I'm going to come across here, I'm going to then know what to do. The guaranteed outcome is turmoil. Not even maybe. The guaranteed outcome is turmoil. You will not get it right. Because when, it's, when the circumstances improve, you're going to realize I picked the wrong plan. But if the situation worsens badly, I picked the wrong plan. Beginning with the circumstances that leads to a plan will guarantee turmoil. So what was intended, we, we covered this Sunday morning. Our actions have to be born in the message that we want to send. I gave an illustration of a, of a lady who's in, a, in her relationship with her husband. It's been difficult. But he's now later in his life, and, and so she's sitting, I don't know whether to leave him, I don't, I don't know what to do. And my explanation was, what message do you want to send him? Do you want to tell him it's over? Do you want to tell him that you love him? Do you want to tell him that you're going to stay no matter what? Because when that settles in you, that message that forms in your heart will be bigger than the circumstances, will be bigger than the situation. So when you make the decision, my message is, I'm staying, I love you, and I will be here to the very end. Then when he turns on you and something foul comes out of his mouth, it will not make a difference. Because the action that you've determined was born out of the message of your heart. And it's strange when it changes from circumstance to action to turmoil, which is what the world offers us, to that from God who forms the message in us, who now determines the action plan, I promise you it will begin to change the circumstance. That's what God intended. Know the message first. And if you know the message, then you can predict the action. What's God's message here? He's sending us a message, and that message says, by this word, you're going to know how I'm going to act. So what does it mean when he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end? What does that tell us? Tell me about my life? I will never be at a point, back here or out here, where God is not mighty, almighty. There will never be a moment, he said, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. He's saying, by that message that, that I just spoke, you're going to know how I'm going to act in your life every single day. You're not going to have to wonder. Because my actions are going to come right out of this message. We're never going to have to wonder about where God stands in his relationship to us. We ought to be able to use something like this. To fight back as, as in spiritual warfare when Satan comes against us and tries 
to derail us or tries to carry us away into something that is irrelevant or unimportant, we should be able to come to this and say, I will not hear you because God has announced to me, God has announced to my heart that I am, that I will always be. And I am as predictable and as certain as this statement and this message delivered. What's the action that's going to come out of this? What is his action toward us when he says, I am Alpha and Omega? I got it. Beginning to end. You will never have to wonder. What's he trying to tell us when he says, which is and which was and which is to come? Yeah. Saying, you know, the God that you read about that says, in the beginning, God created. Notice the first verb used after the word God is the word created. That I can speak and I will, I will speak something in, this, in the creation. I, I will speak and something will suddenly be which has never been before. That's the God that he's talking about here. That I, in your life, I can speak and create something that's never been. And we keep making God smaller and smaller because, he's, because we don't understand this and he's disappointed us. He didn't do what we expected, so we've just adjusted our belief in God. We keep toning it down and toning it down and toning it down till we get God small enough that he won't disappoint us anymore. I can manage it now. And I guarantee you the world is desperate to see the size of God. And one of these days is when the music of my life begins to play the song that God wrote. I will know that every day I am pleasing to him. And I will suddenly look at you in the beauty of who he made you and never criticize you again. We all have those problems. But when my song begins to match your song and we start singing in harmony, singing not only in unity but in unanimity, Unity says we're coming together. Unanimity says your success leans on my success. Is a sequence. That's what God's telling us. This is who we were designed to be. His statement right here says, I will never act against you. So we keep assigning awful things to God. Something bad happens, well, it was God. I cannot do that. From these scriptures, I cannot do that. By his own declaration, he bears witness of himself to us that we might be stable in our faith in him, unwavering because we know him, trusting beyond what we can see and knowing fully that this promise is true. I may see something that, that lives in conflict with this statement. and My heart rises and says I will trust the truth of this word more than the circumstances that I see. The next thing that happens in verse 9 is John's narrative of his own situation. I, John, verse 9, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and in patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a, a great voice. So he's describing himself. He's describing his current situation. So we are absolutely blessed. He, he drops some powerful word bombs into that verse. Let me go back there and just, and just take that apart for just a second. He captures in this narrative a profound reality of our dual citizenship. He is in tribulation, and he's not denying it. But what is the greater truth from that verse? He says, John is also your brother, a companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and the patience of Jesus Christ. What does he describe? Certainly he's in tribulation. He's acknowledging he's in tribulation. But what's greater to John 
in that same truth. I, yes, I'm stuck here as a citizen on the Isle of Patmos, imprisoned here, physically here. But what's he acknowledged that's greater than that? I am a citizen of a kingdom. He's saying, yes, I'm stuck here, but I am not under the rule of this island. I am not limited by the situation where I find myself because there's nothing about John's situation, there's nothing about our situation, no matter how dire it is, that will ever stop the ability of the gates of heaven to be opened straight to our heart. That's what John is telling us. There will never be a day when your circumstances, no matter what they are, will ever shut a gate. Now, you may shut it. You may determine that God's not listening. You may determine that God doesn't care. But John's testimony here is our citizenship, this dual citizenship. says, I may be in dire trouble here with the worst diagnosis that I could possibly receive, but there's nothing in that diagnosis, there's nothing in that news that cuts off my ability to speak right straight into the, to the power of heaven. Most people believe, strangely, that my trouble cuts me off from God. Just in a very practical sense, they, won't, they don't think that, they won't say that. But my trouble says, God doesn't hear me. 1983, from January the 18th to like the 1st or 2nd of January, the high temperature here didn't get above 4 degrees. I remember on a Sunday night, I was supposed to sing in the cantata. I had a solo. I am not coming home. So for those two weeks at four degrees, I've never seen the oil field freeze like it did. Salt water freezing in the lines. And we had a mess. And the guys didn't come home through Christmas. And I can remember about Christmas saying, God, have you forgotten where I am? Why would I say that? Because the trouble, the frustration, the weariness had caused me to wonder if this door was still open. And I'm talking about something that was very temporary when you start dealing with people who are just have major trouble. I guarantee the conclusion is there's something wrong in the relationship between me and God. And, and, and John's trying to tell us. And he captures this very well. And he says, and we must have patience in Jesus Christ. If we're in trouble, what do we want? Immediate relief. And John's saying that the relief is going to come according to the reality of what Jesus' plan is and not because of our dire situation. And he's acknowledging that in the scripture. The narrative is also tells us that we must be ready for that tribulation, and we must be ready for the tribulation that comes in patience. He told us where he physically was. He also tells us that while in bondage, he was not limited in any way from full access to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Yet tribulation cannot stop the flow of God. To us are the exit of God from us. Verse 10, John tells us that he was in the Spirit. I like the commentaries on, in the, that are written by Jameson, Faust, and Brown. I look at those pretty often because they're just profound. And he wrote this, in the Spirit, in a state of ecstasy, the outer world being shut out. So why is it important for us to, in that phrase, be in the Spirit? Why is it important when we come into this sanctuary... Not because we're a church, but because we are joining together with all the differences that we are for one purpose. Why is it important that we recognize that I'm not here to listen to a sermon and I'm not here to just listen to the music? Why do we have to recognize that I am an active participant in what's going on here? And we need to do something. We need to shut the outer world out. If we're going to collectively enter in the spirit, it's like taking each one of us 
and dunking us in the Spirit so that below me, beside me, on top of me, inside me, is the reality of the Spirit. And this is going to sound critical. I don't mean for it to be. Anything that inhibits you from praising God fully is the outer world coming inside here. Anything. Fear, uncertainty, questions. I feel awkward. How do you know you're awkward? How do you know that that would be awkward to you? Because you're processing it against something else. You're comparing it to something else. I'm uncomfortable doing that. What does Jesus call the spirit? The what? The comforter. And I'm uncomfortable in the spirit? There should be no place of greater comfort than in the spirit. He is the comforter. Again, I'm not critical of any way that anybody praises or what they do in that praise, but I have learned about myself. You see me from the back, I don't know what I look like, and I'm kind of afraid to know. But I can't stop. The moving of my feet, the moving of my shoulders, the moving of my arms, there is nothing happening in that moment except my body is responding to a message formed in me that I'm telling God, what you're, these actions you're seeing taken are coming out of a message. Because I have no interest in anything right now except what's happening between me and you. No comparison. In the Spirit, we have the ability to shut that outer world out. And the inner and higher life or spirit being taken full possession of by God's Spirit. So that an immediate connection with the invisible world is established. So while the prophet speaks in the Spirit, the apocalyptic seer is in the Spirit in his whole person. This is John in the Spirit. So if you could actually just see John inside of a container where everything around him was what was only affected by what was in the container, you would understand a little bit of what it means when we're in the Spirit. He was physically consumed, mentally and emotionally consumed in the Spirit and connected with the world, an invisible world. No one around him could see. The Spirit only, that which connects us with God and the invisible world is active or rather the recipient in the apocalyptic state. With Christ, this being in the Spirit was not an exception. It was His continual state. Jesus showed us what it looked like to live in the Spirit. I was visiting with someone over at the school and talking about our lives and future and what's going on. And I told him, you're a rare man to me. Because it's difficult to find a man when you look at his character. That there's not a, a small gap in there where questions form. So you look at somebody that every day is so consistent, so much themselves, that there's not this gap where questions live about, I wonder about something about their character. And I told him, I said, the, the uniqueness of what qualifies you before God is that there is no gap where questions can form by other people. It's a rare, rare characteristic, a rare, rare quality. Jesus took that to this other level where there was no gap in Jesus, where you could ever look at him and wonder if something was coming from his flesh. Never wondering if he was simply reacting to something that was going on around him because he lived in his continual state was in the Spirit. So if Jesus is perfect theology, which I teach that he is, I, I don't have any question that everything he did in those three and a half years of ministry, he was telling you it's possible for you. Or we would start sorting through and say, well, Jesus could do this, but I can't do that. He could do this, but I can't do that. So I think he intended for everything he did for us to see it as a possibility for us. So he's telling us that our life is designed to be lived immersed in the Spirit. So that our connection to this invisible world 
it's not random. As Max described to me Sunday, it's not a roulette wheel where every now and then the ball bounces around and that's God's will and it's random. No, there's a purpose, a connection, and a flow to it that we need to understand because if, if we get that, we'll quit fighting so many things. This moment is connected to the next moment and I can actually walk in the will of God. I can walk in His Spirit so that my prayer life is not an active outer process that I do in continuing in prayer for him to say pray without ceasing is to walk in the spirit so that we can constantly converse with God through the spirit I'm going to stop right there I blew through three verses so we're making good good progress so my commitment is I will teach and if I skip pieces of this I don't want you to be offended because you have to know my objective I'm not here to teach the book of Revelation I can put a book in your hand you can read it and get that I want us to stop and pause. What does it mean to us right now? It was designed to strengthen us in his body right now. Lord, we thank you for this time that we can come together and just open your word. And Lord, know that the revelations were designed to come layer upon layer, unfolding after unfolding. We thank you, Lord, for that picture, for the truth of what you show us, the revelation and how it comes and how it affects us right now. You told us so that it would have an impact right now. And I pray, Lord, that we would seek that out individually and collectively as we're here, that we would seek out the relevance of this revelation to us now. So thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to share tonight. We thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.